Our sermon text this morning is uh, Matthew chapter 23. You can find it in your pew Bible on uh, pages 828 and 829. And as I prepare to read the sermon text this morning, I I didn't delegate it to anyone else because it's kind of long. And uh, I still want to have friends at the end of the service. But what I... What I want you to pay attention to while I read the text is whether the Jesus who is speaking in Matthew 23 is a Jesus you recognize. Or does he sound like a stranger to you? So hear the word of God. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, for our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we believe it's just like you say in Isaiah 55, that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, And they do not return there, but water the earth. And they make it bring forth and sprout. And they furnish a seed to the sower and bread to the eater. That just like that, the word that goes forth from your mouth is not going to return to you empty. It's going to accomplish today in the lives of everyone here exactly what you purpose. I thank you that you have a purpose for your word today in each of our lives. Thank you. And thank you that you promise that it will succeed regardless of my perception of it or anyone else's perception of it. It's going to succeed in precisely the thing for which you send it. So, Father, as we, as we are, find ourselves on both sides of this pulpit this morning, let us yield together to your purpose, to what you want to accomplish Give us ears to hear that and hearts to receive it. And we pray in particular, Father, for those who are not yet born again, not yet joined to Christ, that you and your grace today would accomplish their deliverance and salvation according to the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Friends, uh, Matthew 23 is a hard chapter. And this is where we are now in the Gospel of Matthew. And it, it gives us the opportunity to think about the Gospel in ways that, that we are not, not comfortable tending to think about it. 
And, and here's in particular what I mean. And, and we're going to be in Matthew 23 for the next three weeks. So this week and two more. Okay? So this morning I want to introduce it. And what I want to put on the table this morning is this, is this truth, that in the gospel, confrontation comes before consolation. In fact, in the gospel, consolation or comfort comes through confrontation, not around it. Those two always go together. They go together in that order. They're inseparable. And both of them, both the confrontation and the consolation, are equally traumatic. They both shake and rattle us to our bones. And they're meant to do that. We are not to be able to take the confrontation or the consolation of the gospel in stride. Like, oh yeah, I got that. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Oh yeah, I'm saved by grace. And I'm afraid that, especially when we live in the church for a long time, the gospel becomes matter of fact and how grateful I am for Matthew 23, which is a a graciously rude awakening or reawakening. Jesus is an adversary unlike any other, precisely because he is an advocate unlike any other. Do you remember the sonic booms? Remember the space shuttle? I mean, I miss a lot of things about the space shuttle, but what I really miss are those double sonic booms when the space shuttle would come back in. Do you remember that? Oh, come on. Right? I mean, no matter what you were doing, that first sonic boom would strike and the whole house would shake. And then, boom! The one right after that. And there was no way you could ignore it They were always together. They were always inseparable. And you could not manage. They intruded all the way to the front of your attention no matter what you were doing. And when Jesus comes into the world with his gospel, that's how he enters it. There's a double, a sonic boom, as it were, to the gospel. And these two sonic booms, they always go together. And in the first bone-rattling boom... Jesus confronts us. He confronts us with the worst news we could ever possibly receive. The news that we have all dreaded our entire lives. The deepest dread that is behind everyone, that we find our our worst nightmare, that we fear behind every mistake, every failure, every shortcoming. Every rejection, every evaluation of us that we undergo, there is this dread in the, in the background, this nightmare scenario that we have, which is what will happen to me if, I am been, if I'm weighed in the balance and found wanting? It's what we fear in every rejection, in every failure, when we see our mistakes, our shortcomings, all those things. This is what's in the background. But the, but the, the, the struggle with the gospel is this. That when Jesus confronts us with the truth about our sin and the truth about God's holiness, it's not a nightmare. It's reality. It's not a dream. In ourselves... We can't and won't ever 
withstand the only scrutiny that in the end matters. God's. In the end, the only scrutiny of you or of me that matters is God's. It does not matter if you are the President of the United States, if you are healthy, wealthy, and wise in the eyes of the world. It doesn't matter if you are accomplished, if your family is happy. If you do not live in such a way where you can be confident that you will withstand the scrutiny of God, then you have entered your worst nightmare because the only scrutiny that matters is his. And by the same token, if you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, if you're not successful, if you're poor in spirit, if you mourn, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and struggle to be satisfied with it, if you are persecuted and called all kinds of evil things on account of your relationship to Jesus, if you're a peacemaker that the the world laughs at, well, friends, guess what? Then it doesn't matter what the world's scrutiny of you is because you, in Christ, withstand the scrutiny that matters, God's. So that first boom of the gospel that Jesus brings, it rattles us to our bones. But in the very same breath, right, it's never alone. This is what's so amazing about the gospel. That first boom of confrontation is never by itself. Because in the very same moment, in the very same breath, there's the second boom, which is that Jesus brings us the best news a human could ever hear. He brings us the news that we have dreamed about, not dreaded, but dreamed about all our lives. It's the thing that we have been seeking in every welcome, in every acceptance, in every every achievement, in everything that we have been, by God's grace, enabled to accomplish. It's the sweetness and the beauty behind all of those things, every affirmation, every embrace, every smile, every kiss that we have dreamed we would, we would receive. And it's not a dream. That's what makes the gospel so wonderful. It's not a dream. Because Jesus brings us the news that we are loved by God, the same creator against whom we've rebelled, with a pure, that he loves us with a pure and limitless love, that this God will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that he has gladly bound himself to us for his joy and our own, that the love we have been looking for and the acceptance we have been looking for all our lives has found us in Jesus Christ. And that is a traumatic announcement. Because your life can never be the same after that. To be loved like that frees you. It strengthens you. It puts courage into you. It makes you simultaneously tough as steel and tender. Because you know you didn't deserve that love, but you don't doubt that love. 
It's amazing what the gospel produces. So Jesus, in order to comfort us, has to confront us. And the river of the Bible that we were talking about last week, it carries us on the way to comfort. It carries us right through uh, confrontation. And they're both very uncomfortable for us. So the Jesus that we meet, that's what we're, we're, we're encountering in Matthew 23. The Jesus we meet here unsettles us. And he means to because he's speaking to uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and to his disciples and to the whole world as the final prophet God has sent into the world. And he has come not merely as God's greatest messenger, but as God's greatest message, not only with God's word, but as God's word. And so this morning, I want to look at this, mess, this ministry of Jesus as the final prophet. You remember how Clay introduced last week that Jesus executes the office of a prophet when we were thinking about our affirmation of faith, that he is the one who declares God's word and will to the world. And this morning, I want to think about that ministry uh, of Jesus as the final prophet with you under two headings, Jesus our confronter and Jesus our comforter. So let's look first at Jesus our confronter. And, and to begin with, I know I've already used uh, Bible jargon, so let me, let me use a little bit more, hang in there, and then I'm going to try to explain it. Okay? So what I'm, what I'm saying is this, that Jesus confronts us as uh, the, the final prophet of God. No one will ever confront you the way that Jesus Christ does. No one ever could. No one ever has. Because no one else besides him is the final prophet that God has sent into the world. So I realize there's jargon in that and all kinds of Bible categories that you may not be familiar with. So let me explain it. And in order to explain it, I've got to give you a definition first and then I've got to tell you a story. I know you're already looking forward to the story. You don't want to hear the definition, but you can't appreciate the story without the definition. Okay, so the definition is this. What's a prophet? Well, we tend to think, when we're sloppy, we tend to think that a prophet is just somebody who predicts the future, says what's going to happen. And while that is part of the biblical prophet's ministry, it's a gross oversimplification to say that that's what a prophet is. What really, maybe you've heard this explanation, that, that, that while we tend to think that prophets are foretellers telling the future before it gets here, what they are in the main, they do do some of that, but what they are in the main is foretellers. In other words, they've been entrusted by God with his word to declare his will in the world. Okay? Now, for the story. And the story has three parts. And we've got to think about the way Old Testament prophets work. If you're going to understand Matthew 23 and what Jesus is doing here, you have to see it in context of the river of the Bible. Because this is a peak that we're standing on in Matthew 23. Here is the final prophet standing in the court of the temple. Just days before he's going to be crucified. And so he's the culmination of all the prophets that God has sent for centuries to his people. So, in order to understand Old Testament prophets and the ministry of the prophet, you, you have to understand the Bible. How's that for a starter? 
So I want you to think about the Old Testament, okay? We, and this, this builds on what we thought about together last week. So think about the first five books of the Old Testament. We call that the Pentateuch, right? Those are the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, one way to think about those books is that they represent, because by the, by the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, Israel's come out of the wilderness, is just poised to enter the land. So what those five books really record is God's establishment of his covenant with Abraham's descendants, with the people of Israel. So the covenant is made, and God is beginning to fulfill that covenant by bringing his people toward the promised land. And then, once you get out of the Pentateuch and you go from Joshua all the way to the rest of the Old Testament until the prophets begin, you can think about, and that's a lot of real estate, what, one way to think about that portion of the Old Testament is those books are in the Bible essentially as recording the history of the covenant. In other words, Israel got the covenant. Now, how did it live in that covenant? And, of course, we've seen this over and over again. They didn't live well, did they? In fact, the farther they got into the covenant the worse their performance got. Now, of course, I'm dealing with with sweeping generalizations at this point, but I I think these are fair, defensible summaries, right? The the farther Israel went into its life as the covenant people of God, its performance declined and ultimately culminated in the exile. But ironically, there was this intensification at the very same time of God's promises. As the performance got worse of the covenant people, the covenant promises got bigger and bigger. Now, the prophets were sent by God in the main as his covenant litigators. They were sent particularly in a heavy concentration during the years of the monarchy to press God's claims under the covenant with his people, to call them to repentance, to remind them of the terms and the boundaries and the, the, the threatened curses and the promised blessings under the covenant. And the prophet, God sent the prophets to say, hey, remember, remember who you are. Remember who I am. And they would press Yahweh's claims. They were his litigators with the people of God. But they were not just bringing words of curse They were his litigators also in bringing and reassuring the people of the promises of blessing that were also uh, made by God under the covenant. And so they came and they pressed Yahweh's claims. There was, in the prophets, there was both confrontation and consolation. But in all of it, the prophets looked back to those first five books and what God had done for Israel. And even the woes of the prophets, and you see this especially in Isaiah chapter 5, the woes that the prophets pronounce that Jesus is deliberately echoing here in Matthew 23, the seven woes that he you know, pronounces on the scribes and the Pharisees, those echo the prophets' woes upon Israel for their disobedience. But even those woes are opportunities. See, because God has come in the person of his prophets to call his people back, to invite them, to summon them, to woo them, to command them to return in repentance. So that's strand number one. 
the prophets of the Lord. Strand number two, we've got to go back to Deuteronomy 18. So turn with me. It's on page, uh, let's see, uh, page 161 in your pew Bible. You go with me to Deuteronomy 18. In the beginning section of the Bible, God makes a stu- uh, really a surprising promise to Moses near the end of Moses' ministry. God promises to send one particular prophet. Look at verses 18 and 19. I will raise, he's speaking to Moses now. Moses is recounting uh, to Israel what the Lord has told him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Notice a singular prophet from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. It's a very interesting promise that God is, is pledging that, that he is going to send a final climactic prophet of all the prophets. There will be one prophet in the end, who will uh, convey and be entrusted with uh, the message of God's uh, full will. And when we get to the New Testament, both Peter in Acts chapter 3 and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 both understand that prophet to be, I wonder if you can guess who that prophet is. It's Jesus. And so in the end, What that means is that the ministry of all the prophets that God sends, all the prophets of the Lord, the ministry, their their entire, the meaning of their ministry is ultimately about the climactic ministry of the prophet, the final prophet of the Lord, which is exactly what we saw the Apostle Peter say in 1 Peter 1 last week that all the prophets about the salvation, right, that, that, that they had been taught by the Holy Spirit, they inquired very carefully to determine uh, the meaning or what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. you remember that? So that's strand number two. God sends prophets. Number one is that God sends prophets to his people to be his covenant litigators, to be the ones who call his people back, who come with his word to his people to remind them of the covenant, of who he is and who he intends that they will be. Strand number two is that out of all of those prophets, God promises in Deuteronomy 18, at the very beginning of the Bible, he says he's going to do this, right? He's going to send one final climactic uh, prophet whose, whose ministry is actually going to be the culmination of all the other ministry of the prophets. Strand number three, let's go to the last book in our Old Testament, book of Malachi, okay? So if you go to Malachi 3, which is on page 802 in your pew Bible. How does the Old Testament end? How does our Old Testament end? It ends with a very startling promise by God in Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, that's the, that's the promise that is fulfilled by John the Baptist. Yahweh is going to send a messenger who's going to go before and prepare the way for him. And Jesus understands that to be John the Baptist. 
And then now notice what happens next. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, where is Jesus in Matthew 23? He's standing in the temple court. And the messenger of the covenant, this is not John the Baptist, this is not the messenger in, at the beginning of verse 1, this is the Lord himself coming as the messenger of his own covenant. Do you see what that means? That means the Lord is coming to his temple as his own ultimate prophet. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, now that's good news, isn't it? God's finally going to appear. But look at verse 2. It's going to be a, a very uncomfortable confrontation when he appears. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Now, friends, it's very helpful. It's a corrective for all of us because we can be so casual and sloppy when we think about the greatness of God. But you notice when God is speaking about his coming to his temple, what he's saying is that nobody can endure my coming. No human, not even the sons of Levi, the priests, can can endure the day of my coming unless I act to purify them. Because I, or he in, in, in the frame of Malachi 3, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You see, God is going to come and there is consolation ultimately, but he comes first in confrontation, a confrontation between his righteousness and holiness and the the inadequate, would be the nicest way to say it, woefully inadequate a righteousness and piety of his people. And so, friends, that's the confrontation that Jesus is, is enacting in Matthew 23, at least in part, right? When Jesus Christ stands in the temple court and announces his seven woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees, the promise of Malachi 3 has been fulfilled. The Lord of hosts has indeed suddenly come to his temple, and he has a message to bring. And it is a message first of confrontation before it is a message of consolation. Friends, when you think, now let's think about the confrontation. Let's understand the confrontation that Jesus is enacting in Matthew 23. I want you to think about the Old Testament prophets with me for a minute. Because their experience helps us to understand Jesus' ministry. Okay, so now when you think about Isaiah, you think about Jeremiah, you think about Ezekiel, you think about Daniel, think about Jonah. What was true about each of those men was that they were confronters. But before they confronted others, they had first been confronted by the reality of God themselves. 
And it was traumatic for every one of them. You can't read Isaiah's conversion, uh, his report of his conversion in Isaiah 6, and not see that he was utterly shaken to his bones when he was met by the reality of God. Woe is me, for I am what? I am lost. Or Jeremiah, who is the weeping prophet, who again and again through such a long ministry over and over and over again is confronted by the holiness of God and his will. And Ezekiel, the opening of Ezekiel, he meets a God whom he can't control. And Daniel, who, is, who meets a, a God, who is met by a God who is, who is just utterly sovereign over all the nations for his glory. And every one of those cases, the Old Testament prophet was somebody who'd, who'd been traumatically encountered by the reality of God. And when, when he was encountered by the reality of God, everything, he went back into life, as it were, with everything changed. He could never look at himself in the same way. He could never look at God in the same way. He could never look at men and the world of men in the same way. And he definitely could not be impressed with the play religion of men. Everything changed. The energy in the prophet's ministry was this encounter. The, the, the passion in the prophet's ministry was this encounter that God had initiated, this collision before all the other collisions, this collision between, in the prophet's life between the prophet and the reality of God, a collision that God ordained and that God brought about and that changed the prophet forever. Every prophet had to be dismantled before he could wear the prophet's mantle. He had to be undone before he could be useful. You know, that's exactly the same. Uh, The same is exactly true today for you and for me. You're going to be most useful to God when you've been most undone by his greatness. Now, the last night of our vacation, we went out, uh, when we were in Berkeley, we went out for ice cream, which is what we did every other night of our vacation. And when we were leaving the ice cream store, there was this guy who had parked his van on the side of the, right on the sidewalk, well, right next to the sidewalk. And, you know, weird things happen in Berkeley. So when you come out of an ice cream store and you see this guy with this big van and he's got this huge bucket in the back of the van, and he's got these two sticks and this rope that connects the two sticks, sticks, and he's dipping this thing into this bucket and pulling it out again and making the biggest bubbles you've ever seen, you just say, well, it's Berkeley. But I had to stop, and I was, these, these were, I am not exaggerating, these were the biggest bubbles I'd ever seen. They were awesome. They were huge. And they would they were so beautiful, and they would just float. But you knew, I mean, they were humongous, okay? But they were, you knew they were just as humongous as they were in size, they were also humongously fragile. Because it was just going to be a matter of time before a, an AC transit bus hit it, or it hit a telephone pole, or a hipster, Okay? 
They were fragile. I knew. I watched them, though. I was mesmerized by them. I didn't just say, they're bubbles. I was mesmerized by these things, even though I knew they wouldn't last, and even though I knew they couldn't last. And watching them reminded me of the prophets. I thought about Matthew 23 when that happened. And I thought about what's true. You know, when the prophets, after they meet the reality of God, they see the world as a bubble. The world system is a bubble. The, the play morality of men and women as, as just a bubble that is not going to be, it's not going to last because there's a collision coming. The prophets knew that the reality of God was coming into the world and that the bubbles that, were, that men had built in order to escape and avoid God, they were not going to last that encounter. That everything that men think of as solid, as steady, as reliable, and that all disobedience that, that we raise up against the glory of God and that through which we defy him, the prophets saw that it was just a bubble and that surely the wicked have had their feet set in slippery places. They are, like Psalm 73 says, a dream. In the end, they're just a bubble. And if the prophets saw the bubble world and the bubble religion of men, and the piety of men, you know, this, this drive that we have to prove ourselves good as just a bubble that is not going to escape a collision with the true holiness and greatness of God. And if the prophets knew that, how much better did Jesus know that? You see, Jesus is in a unique position to be the final prophet because he is the ultimate insider. He is an insider to the reality of God. He knows from the inside what the true greatness of God is. He knows the glory of God from the inside. He knows the holiness of God from the inside. And he also knows the reality of men from the inside. He has lived in the midst of men, in the world of men, as a man for over three decades by the time he stands in the temple court. He knows the reality of God's greatness. That's why he is so uh, adamant when he calls out the scribes and Pharisees in verses, uh, in verses, let's see, where is it? 16 through 22, he says, you blind guides, are you kidding me? I mean, really? Are you kidding me that you would say, that you would make up this rule that if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, and so he's not bound by his oath? But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you better keep your oath. If you swear by the altar, it's nothing, you don't have to keep that promise. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar, you need to keep that oath. Jesus says, are you kidding me? Are you playing games with God? 
You see, Jesus looks up from the temple. He looks up from all this play piety. He looks up to heaven and he sees God who is on a throne. And he knows that the bubbles that men make will not last. And he has come to warn them. He sees the bubble world of men. He sees the bubble religion of men. And because he knows that those bubbles have no future, that they won't be able to endure the day of his coming, he calls the scribes and the Pharisees and us as well away into reality. Friends, the wonder of the gospel is this. I mean, that's a painful confrontation to have God come and tell you you're a bubble dweller. You're a bubble pietist. That's painful. That's a confrontation unlike any other. But the wonder of the gospel is this, that in Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts has indeed come to his temple like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap and gives himself to be refined in the place of his people by his suffering. He comes to his temple to bring himself under his own woes, the woes that we have earned. And that's how he's going to purify his people. That's how he's going to take the dirty, filthy, unqualified sons of Levi and purify them so that they will be qualified to offer to the Lord a righteous offering and worship. It is by the Lord of hosts coming himself, bringing himself under his own woes. This is the wonder of the gospel, that Jesus brings us news of a confrontation at the heart of which he is the one confronted with our sin. See, that's what sets Christianity apart, is that God brings himself under the condemnation that we have deserved. And and as he announces that to us, he does it to call us out of the bubbles into real life. So now, and, and that rescue, by the way, is traumatic. It's traumatic. And if it's not traumatic to you, it's because you're playing games with it. But if you really see it for what it is, if you really see that confrontation that God himself would come in Jesus, and he's not play-acting, but he's coming personally, and he is being confronted. You want to you understand the cross? Look at the cross and see there the head-on, the God-ordained head-on collision between the reality of God and the reality of men. You know, I was reading it yesterday in my reading in Mark chapter 15 when Mark got to the description of Jesus's crucifixion it just you know you know how certain details sometimes you read the Bible they just pop out you've read them thousands of times before but they just stand out in light of other things that you're thinking about and it just it just floored me that there was darkness over the land for three hours as Jesus was being crucified 
If you want to know, that is what the collision between the holiness of God and the reality of men looks like, friends. Three hours of darkness. This was not a bookkeeping entry for God. This was not a check or uncheck that box. This was a labor. This was a confrontation unlike any others. And it was it was made and undertaken so that Jesus could also be our comforter. You see, don't you feel it? Every week I feel like the cross, like I hardly knew the cross. I have to learn it all over again. It's endlessly fruitful for us. And now we we think about the comfort that Jesus achieved for us through that confrontation. I mean, we all want comfort, but the thing is, we want it comfortably. But Jesus has no comfort to offer us that isn't going to discomfort us. I mean, we want him to just come, come alongside us and just give us a slight course correction. I mean, sure, I'll admit I'm wrong. Nobody's perfect. We're all deeply flawed. You ever heard that before? And so the, the mental picture I have is that Jesus comes, I'm going this way, I'm a, I'm a little bit off, and Jesus comes alongside and says, hey, Mike, let's just go this way, just a little bit. Not too much has to change. You really, I mean, I want to pat you on the back. You haven't been that far off. It's not Jesus' picture because it's not God's picture. God's picture is head-on collision. And the cross is proof of that. Jesus has comfort to give you, friend, but he does not have comfort to give you that is going to is going to be comfortable in the receiving. It's going to upset you. It's going to change your life. It's going to rattle your bones. It's going to make the, the, the sonic boom of the space shuttle look like a whisper. Because we're all bubble dwellers. We have this lovely little bubble, first of our imagined goodness and our piety. And it feels safe and comfortable and pretty. But Jesus knows it's deadly. And so he has to burst it. And we've got another bubble that we love, which is the bubble of God whose proportions, both of his holiness and his requirements of us, are manageable. They're within reach. And we love those bubbles. But Jesus, who's the final prophet, sees them as the deadly delusions that they are and comes and painfully and yet mercifully bursts them. Think about yourself and the bubble that we have of ourselves. I mean, we want to believe, like I was saying, that we only need a course correction that if God would just give us just a little bit more accurate information, we would manage on our own. Oh, we want to believe that. And the reason we want to believe that is because we don't want to need a rescuer. We don't want, we, or if anything, we want to be our own rescuer because we want to be our own hero. We don't want anyone else up on the podium except us. 
But the problem is that our lives already prove that we won't and can't ever do that, that the best outcome, that the best outcome we can achieve for ourselves is that we will just play religion. And we will have a little pious tea party. And we'll invite doll versions of God to it. And doll versions of Jesus. And we'll sit down as the doll version of ourselves, And we'll just, we'll just have a little tea party. We'll just play religion. And that's so much of what we do. But God is not to be tamed. I mean, is that, is that how you think about God? I mean, I know you don't say he's in a tea party with me, but is that how you live? See, at a tea party, you're not traumatized by your guests. You're not shocked. And you're kind of in charge. Because they don't really talk back, do they, at the tea party? I mean, all the words that they speak at the tea party, you put in their mouths. But if God is God, he always has more to say to us than we have to him. And do you have a category for an encounter with God in which he would disagree with you and tell you you're wrong and tell you you're in danger? Do you have a category for a Jesus whose will would be contrary to your own? If you don't, you're just playing tea parties with him. And the vision of God, we want to believe that he's the bubble of our theology. We want to believe that God's just not that holy. Friends, when's the last time you went to the beach? Hopefully it was recently. You live in Florida. And I'm sure that you, unlike me, you put sunscreen on. And why did you put sunscreen on? Isn't it amazing to think that the sun, which is 93 million miles away, a furnace 93 million miles away, can burn you to a crisp? What would it be like to have God standing right next to you in his temple in the white hot fury of his holiness. Do you really imagine that whatever piety or morality or good decisions you can generate for your own life would be enough to enable you to stand? No. Jesus has to pop that bubble. And when he does, what what do we see? What's left over? What's the reality that Jesus lays bare for us and that we celebrate at the table this morning? Well, first, there's the, the, the good and shocking news of God's holiness. You see, friends, un, unless and until the reality of God's holiness is traumatic in your life, then you're still just a bubble dweller who's playing tea party with God. I mean, remember Isaiah. Whoa. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord 
of hosts. Now think about that. The best strength of Isaiah, as you can tell from his book, was his words. And he's doing the best possible thing you could do. He's worshiping. He's in the temple. And his offense appears to be the least offensive thing of all. All he did was see the king, and he didn't even initiate that. And yet, and yet, he's ruined. You see, it's not until you realize, until you're traumatized by the realization, that even your best deeds and what you regard as your best piety and morality, that even those not only are inadequate, but leave you blameworthy alongside the true holiness of God. It's not until that point that you, you can be assured that you're outside the bubble. Oh, friends, it's so important. The greatest message of the final prophet, his cross, teaches us that we cannot manage by our own piety or our own obedience or our own morality the holiness of a God whose response to our sin requires the crucifixion of his son. The cross bursts that bubble of our play religion and our tea party piety and it is a life-alteringly traumatic mercy. But that's not the only thing that Jesus, the only part of the reality that Jesus uh, rescues us into when he bursts our bubble. The second part is, is the reality of God's love. This is, see, the comfort, the comfort that Jesus means to give us comes as we see that he himself has answered the demands of his holiness and he has done this from driven by a love, impelled by a love that's unlike any other. And friends, it's not until God's love and his grace are just as traumatic to us as his holiness is, it's not until that point. I mean, God's love, I know this is an odd way to say it, but God's love needs to traumatize you. If it doesn't traumatize you, you're probably still in the bubble. We do play religious tea party with God's love just like we do with his holiness. The greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached was his death. And the greatest pulpit he ever occupied was his cross. And the message he proclaims in that sermon of his death is the message of the love and grace of a God who is willing to use his crown on a cross to save his enemies. No one loves you like that. No one ever could love you like that. That is a traumatic announcement that is meant to bring you comfort and in a way that can't fit into your categories, but is meant to to just continue to resonate in a way that changes your life, that buoys you in your suffering, that, that buoys you against the criticism of others, that produces endurance, that changes the way you think about your future. Young people, you're sitting here thinking about going to law school or medical school or having 
having your own business. What if that love so captured your heart that God laid on your heart a people group that no one is paying attention to, in which the Bible is not in their language, and you resolved at the ripe old age of 14 to be the expert in that language so that the ministry of the final prophet could be communicated to that people group in their own language. That's the kind of thing that love will do. Inside the bubble, God's love and grace are small and weak. God loves us in that bubble. We imagine that God loves us in proportion to our loveliness. Forgive us, Lord. That he loves us in proportion to our obedience. Forgive us, Lord. And we think about his grace as something inside the bubble. We think about his grace as something that is dispensed as a supplement to help us be better or to feel better about ourselves. But when Jesus bursts that bubble on his cross, the reality outside the bubble that he rescues us into is one in which the love and the grace of God are enormous and and omnipotent and in a way that will rattle your bones if you let it the love that you've been seeking for and looking for all your life has found you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that, is true comfort. Our confronter has made himself our comforter by bringing himself under his own confrontation. Friends, Jesus is the final prophet who has come to place himself under his own woes, the woes that we deserved, to shed his own blood, to make it safe for sinners like us to inhabit reality. And this table is the real world. This is not a tea party. This is, this is the real world where life is lived outside the bubble. It's not, this is not play religion. This is not a pretend tea party that we invite dolls to. But this is a feast. A feast that our king has prepared for us. It's the table that he has set for us at the price of his own blood. It's the table where he, the real God, will meet with the real us. The people have been purified and qualified by his sacrifice to enjoy him forever. It's the table where he gives himself away to us as his people, yet again without any reserve and without any regret. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Burst the bubbles that mesmerize us yet again of the cross. We pray in your name. Amen.